from the Credit Union National Association. This is the CUNA News Podcast. Credit Union people, credit union ideas. I'm Adam Mertz, Associate Manager for CUNA News and Credit Union Magazine. We're joined today by Annie Janning, whose ability to deliver poignant, motivational presentations tailored to the credit union audience and mission has made him a recognizable figure in the industry. With a background as a credit union executive in organizational development and training, Janning visits credit unions across the country to speak about leadership and fulfilling one's personal potential. Many of his experiences appear in his first book, Heroes, Villains, and Drunk Old Men, which he published in 2017. I recently spoke by phone with Janning about the rapid changes taking place in the credit union movement and the lessons he shares in his book. You always make a big point in your presentations of trying to inspire the audience. You're telling your story, I know, but you're trying to use that as the platform to get them to go on and and do something for themselves, to improve their lives, Mm -hmm. to make a difference in other people's lives. I'm wondering if you can look back on the last year or so, if there's a couple of exchanges that you've had with people at these various events you've been at that just absolutely reaffirmed your faith in what credit unions do and why you do what you do. Yeah, I get I get a little emotional thinking about that because these stories happen. A lot of them are when people come up to me uh, either during a break or after the session and they say that, hey, what we talked about here today and the things that we were introduced to today, help me go back and reinvigorate my marriage. Help me go back and have um, conversations that help that help heal my relationship with my children, that help me go back and reboot my relationship with my staff to get those stories for me you can't put a price tag on that Uh, that for me is a great call like i said this industry among uh, of of any out there has a huge heart for people and community and service and putting people you know people helping people that takes a toll on people though when you when you fill up organizations with human beings that want to do good work for other human beings that takes something essential out of us and it can really create burnout if there's not an intentional process to build people back up. So to be able to, to, to speak that life, to speak not just bland words of inspiration, not just to regurgitate the latest accessories poster or the latest in, in inspirational meme on Instagram, but to really give people actionable things that can help them push back the dark of burnout, that can help them realize that this is not just a job. It can be a career. It can be a call. And that's not cheesy. That's what work, I think, should be. This should bring out the best of us. So to see those reactions from new friends in the audience, to hear their stories when they, when they email them to me, uh, to hear those testimonials, to see lives transformed a little bit by what I've said, but a lot of it is because of the work that they've done after my time with them, that's, that's an amazing opportunity. Those exchanges, I think, are a testament to your belief in the power of open communication. And when I've heard you speak, um, you're, I mean, you're very candid about lessons that you've learned, shortcomings that yeah. you've had, and how you've moved on from that. And uh, I'm, I'm curious about what hurdles maybe you went through in your mind about what, how do I share this? Uh, what's the point where I feel comfortable sharing uh, in, in a way that might inspire someone else to get over that hurdle of speaking a little bit more openly with others. 
So I can point back to one specific two-minute conversation with Ron Shevlin. Uh, Ron Shevlin, as you know, has uh, been an, uh, an incredible, uh, incredibly wise and powerful and direct voice in the credit union industry and the financial industry uh, for decades. And he has been a great supporter. He has been a great friend to me over the years. And so about four years ago, I got the chance to uh, talk about the topic that would eventually be formed into my book, Heroes, Villains, and Drunk Old Men. And at the time, this, this presentation was more about, was more about movies and more about the mentor-protege relationship in movies and what lessons we can learn from that. Because that was safe. You know, it's safe to talk about movies and collective entertainment and things that we all know about. But after that was done, I got great reaction from the audience. And at the end of it, though, I went up to Ron and I asked him, I said, Ron, so what would you think? And he looked at me and he said, you really want to know? Now, when Ron Shevlin says that to you, you better, you better be ready because he's not – what he's about to say next is said with respect and with care, and it's not designed to tear people down, but it's designed to help. And it did. And he says, yeah. He says, Andy – says, yeah, okay, I like the message, but here's the thing. You need to ground it in real people. You need to ground this in reality mm -hmm. because, yeah, the movie characters are interesting, but where this really will, will hit with people is when you show them real people. And for me, that was like, okay, I have to tell my story, not to make it autobiographical, but to show, but to use these concepts that have been around us for thousands of years in terms of storytelling and who we want to be, to use popular culture and stories as a point of entry into real lives, real stories, real scars, and real successes. So, yeah, that was a, uh, that was, uh, that, was, that was a little challenging for me at, at, at times. Um, how much of yourself do you share? Um, how much do you, how much do you hold back? And realizing that, you know, as I get older, it's like, you know what? I want to honor the people who, who have helped me, uh, and I want to create a legacy that others can follow. Um, this isn't to build up my own reputation. People are going to forget about me in a matter of, in a matter of months or days. This is not about whatever small kingdom I'm going to create. It's helping people keep their torch lit so they can go down the road and they can bless other people. That's what I want to do. And the only way you can do that is to share yourself to share your unique story in the hopes that others can live out their best version of it. And I definitely want to dig into your new book. Um, first, I want to just touch on a couple of kind of credit union angles uh, that I think you probably bumped into topics that are out there and they do apply to some of your experiences. And number one on my list was leadership. And you're talking mm -hmm. about refilling the tank. And um, mm -hmm. I'm sure you've seen it. How many leaders are the ones who are getting drained more often than anyone else. And, uh, you know, there's thousands of books out there on the shelves, like literal shelves and virtual shelves, mm -hmm. podcasts, whatever else it is. It seems like people can't get enough of leadership training and development. What are you seeing out there? Or what are people looking for that they can't seem to find? They're looking for hope. Uh, I think people are looking for um, this sense of, does this really matter? And is this really making a difference? Um, to be able to see the impact in one small corner of their universe, I think is an essential human quality. Um, when I look at the statistics about burnout, 
which I call it the fight. I call it this. It's a it's a Fight Club type phenomenon. And again, using movie references, mm-hmm. the movie Fight Club is famous for its its number one rule, which you don't talk about Fight Club. And I think the same thing is true with burnout. People don't want to talk about burnout. People don't want necessarily to talk about the the struggles and the weights and the strains of things that they have to deal with, especially at work, because it may make them too vulnerable. It may make them look weak. It may make them look somehow less than qualified. But when you look at the fact that, and these were statistics that the Society for Human Resources Management put out here a couple of years ago, employers will spend $300 billion, billion with a B, annually for health care and missed work days as a result of workplace stress. We at, at no time in modern workplace history have workers been asked to do more with less, to work longer hours, and have never been more connected. And we're kind of reaping the fruits of this uh, never quite off the clock um, mentality. So when I talk about hope, it's giving people the sense that I want them to see the impact that they have. Burnout's made up of three different elements depersonalization, emotional exhaustion, lack of lack of personal achievement. We stop seeing people as people. We emotionally just get numb. We have no energy to fill up or down. And we start getting the sense that what we do doesn't matter. Well, I could just quit tomorrow, the, the thinking says, and you know, so I would be replaced by another cog in the machine. Credit unions have a responsibility and a right to be able to show their folks uniquely, here's the unique difference you make, not just on our bottom line, but in our members' lives. Here are the financial dreams you helped make. Here are the things you helped do. And once we do that, we as an industry have a charge and a responsibility to do that. At the end of the day, as they say, that's what people want to see, to point at something and say, I made that, I did that, and be able to have a team of people behind them that they can say, I helped them. So many of these pieces fit together. You have the background as a credit union trainer and with organizational development. I'd start on the mm-hmm. first one. What have you seen in terms of the evolution of training uh, for better or worse, you know, of late? Are, are we doing a better job of inspiring people and explaining to them uh, their role in an organization and it extends beyond just what they're doing, their daily tasks? I would say yes, but with an asterisk. I think that you know, as technologies continue to evolve, we realize that bringing people into the standard two-hour Tuesday morning workshop to get all their products and services uh, training, quote-unquote, and I'm using air quotes because you can totally see those, that, does, that doesn't necessarily work. Uh, we are a very mobile workforce. We have to be very agile. A lot of the credit unions listening to this right now, they have a handful of staff and they have a lot of members waiting outside the door. So being able to get information um, to our people has never been easier. But this doesn't mean that we have done as good of a job with helping them practice what they know. Knowledge isn't power. Performance is power. It's what you do with what you know that makes a difference. And I think a talent development will, will always be hamstrung to a certain degree by the way in which we measure it. A lot of the measurements that we use in this industry are very much trainer-centric in the sense that, hey, Let me fill out this 10-point questionnaire at the end of a two-hour training class or a one-hour webinar. What did you think about the session? How did you like the trainer? Did you enjoy the content? Do you think it will help you? Those metrics, while easy to get, are relatively meaningless. It's what you do, the behavior change, the bottom line impact, that not only justifies an organization's investment in organizational development, but also invigorates the people who are going through the program. We as, as the credit union industry, I think we're making strides in that area, 
but we can never be good enough with this because training and marketing always seem to be the last to know and the first to go when budgets get tight. And I think that is terrifically short-sighted. If we are not investing in our people and actively marketing them at just as well, if not more than the membership, then we, we're not going to be relevant for much longer. So that, for me, I think is, will always be a challenge. How do we measure impact? How do we help them practice what they know in the environment in which it will be used, rather than making it easy on the training department? There's been so much change in this industry and so much more is coming that organizational mm-hmm. development, figuring out how and where to deploy staff uh, to meet the needs of your credit union and the members just seems to be rising in importance greatly. Um, wondering what you're seeing in terms of uh, forward thinking by credit unions to train, retrain, uh, reorganize their work staffs to meet these needs. Yeah, I'm seeing much more, uh, the, at least the credit unions that I talk to, uh, you know, and again, not sometimes in very great depth and sometimes just you know, some very surface conversations. But I'm seeing this more of this push toward community learning of realizing that it's not just the training department's job to get everybody trained up on a specific product, service, or practice. That this is really a responsibility of organizations to bring experts from all levels of the organization and really help them share what they know to shamelessly, as my friend Denise Wymore says, uh, to shamelessly R&D, rip off and develop from other areas. <laughs> right. To realize that there, to realize that there is no one pocket of expertise from which all good answers flow. That they're everywhere. And a really good organizational development team will find a way to bring all of those things together to create a learning and performance and, and learning and performance strategy that incorporates all elements of the organization that doesn't see another area's expertise as a threat to their overall effectiveness. So I think once in that community, reflecting that community, I kind of, I think reflects the growth of social media. We want this community. We want to, to know that we're not alone. Having that community, creating those cult, that culture of experts who are willing to share their expertise and to help hold other ki- people accountable in their journey toward excellence, I think that's going to be something that will uh, continue to transform this industry. You know, I think you, speaking of your journey, I think one of the the comments that you made that I've seen you write about here is about taking responsibility for your own journey. You know, not uh, discounting the impact of training, but not waiting on someone to train you and to give you the answers. And I was at a, a high school orientation last night for my oldest daughter. Is said, don't let life happen to you. And I thought that that was pretty poignant. And I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, um, is that the message? How hard can you drive home that message to people to reevaluate what you're doing constantly and look for resources that will help you? Uh, I can't do it enough. And I'm, and I don't say any of that because I've got it licked. I'm not saying that because, oh, I'm, I'm amazing at this, and you all should <laughs> learn from me, small humans. I, you, it's so easy because we will, we will fight for habit. We will fight for what we know. We will fight for the devil that we know versus the devil that we don't. Uh, and so I, this is where mentorship comes in. Uh, when you look at the journey, when you look at the stories that we like to tell of the people that we want to be, to a person. Every single hero in every single story you've ever read or seen on the screen always had a mentor, a mentor who pushed them, who some ways ticked them off, but always challenged them to find the next direction. And then to help that person, the hero, develop more heroes, 
to find more places and more people that they can work on. One of the things that I say in my book is that every year or two that you should actively update your resume and look for a job. You may not take it, but you may just, you never want to disconnect from how you are evolving. You never want to say, well, I am this and I am only this and I will, uh, and I will never ever be anything else. And I think there's, I think that is a minority way of thinking in the sense that, well, I was, I was born to be an accountant or a branch manager or a CEO. Well, goals change. You change. People's needs and, and demands of you change. I, in my career, I am far and away different where I thought it would be at year six in this whole entrepreneurial journey than where I thought it was going to be. And that's good because I've had different people saying, hey, wouldn't it be interesting if you did this? I see these strengths. I see these things that you may want to stop doing. So I think that constant push of evolution, not just for not random, not not in an arbitrary way, but constantly reevaluating what is important to me and how can I serve others with it? How can I use my gifts and talents to continue to bless the world around me? That should be a constant question that folks with a servant's heart who fill up this industry and others should always be asked. In reading through the materials with your new book, Heroes, Villains, and Drunk Old Men, there was a section there, uh, it was a workbook essentially, eight questions for every hero for people to sit mm-hmm. down. It seems like we're kind of walking through that journey a little bit in that conversation. And, and it started with the question, what do I want? Which I think is a scary question for a lot of people when it gets to yeah. their own their own personal uh, interests and, and tastes. The other one was, what does victory look like? And it feels yeah. like those two are just uh, it, you know intrinsically tied together and and very scary concepts for people to approach, aren't they? Yeah, and, and you know, going through this, going through that process and coming up with these questions, yeah, I, I didn't like it. This was one of the more uncomfortable areas of the book for me to write because I had to ask myself, you know, what what do I really want? Am I did I inherit it for someone else? Am I living someone else's story? Am I trying to do someone else's life right now? And you know, in the work that I do you're on social media a lot. You're around other experts a lot. And there's always a lure to compare. And, you know, I've, you've heard it said that comparison is the thief of joy. And nowhere has that ever been more certain for me than at this stage of my life. And when you start comparing yourself, then you start losing what your essence is. So asking yourself, continue to ask yourself that question, what is it I want and why do I want it? And then truly saying, okay, what does victory really look like? And realizing that the questions don't stop there. It's the essential questions of what am I going to give away once I've achieved my victory? Every single great story of every single really inspiring real world and imaginary hero always involves them giving something essential of themselves away. They hardly keep anything for themselves. They move it on to other people. They see themselves as a conduit for, for blessing rather than the ultimate destination of it. Uh, and again, that's hard for me sometimes because it's like, well, no, it's mine. I won this. No one else can have it. It's like, you know what? All of this is on loan anyway from somebody else. Everything I have here right now, including my expertise, including whatever assets I have, someone else is going to own it someday anyway. If I don't get busy on the process of passing that down, it's going to die with me. And I don't want, and I don't want that to happen because I am only here doing what I do because other people invested in me. 
who am I to say then that I don't at least, I, that I'm not at least required to follow in their footsteps? You touched on this too, the, the hero's journey. Um, and that mm-hmm. pertains obviously to the name of the book. And uh, I'm curious about uh, how you'd explain that to a layman. When you know, you've done it in your presentations, what's what's kind of your favorite example, maybe, of the hero's journey in a literary sense or in a real life sense that you can relate to people? Well, a very timely one uh, again for me is Star Wars. Uh, again, I'm, I saw the original movie. It was the first movie I ever saw back in May 1977. The first weekend it came out, and with the new Star Wars movie, I can't think of a better example. I mean, the the, the main character, Luke Skywalker. He is. He starts off where every hero starts off. He starts off in obscurity. Some kid just kicking dirt on some remote area, thinking, "Man, when is my life going to change? I want something more." And then a mentor figure comes to him and says, "Hey, you have a gift. You have you have something that you know this community or the galaxy needs. You know, we you could really develop this. I can help you get there." So that hero's journey then is the hero saying, "Okay, someone believes in me." I'm going to follow this person to help me develop my skills. And then there's this whole middle section of the hero's journey when the hero basically stinks at everything. <laughs> that the hero, he's, he's trying to learn stuff, and, and a really good mentor will break the hero down, not vindictively, not in a cruel or, or you know, malignant way, but really trying to bring the, the essence of the hero out and to burn away the impurities. And there's going to come a point where the hero braces under that, where he is... Where he, where he chafes underneath that, he doesn't like what he's seeing in himself, and there are points where the hero doesn't want to be mentored anymore. But there comes a point where he puts it all together. He starts finally realizing his worth and realizing that the mentor is right. And then the hero goes to fight the villain, Darth Vader. He goes to fight, you know, he goes to fight the big bad. And there always is a point in the hero's journey where it looks like the hero is going to lose where the villain seems to have the final victory and it looks like the hero is going to is is going to be defeated. But that's the point where the hero puts everything together, realizes everything that he's been given, everything that he's learned, and applies it to to win the ultimate victory, to defeat the villain and to pass along the reward that he gets to other people. That is that is in essence the average person's work day. Think about it. People didn't, you know, people weren't born on credit union payrolls. Someone came to them and said, you have a gift. We'd like to hire you. And they do. They get trained. They get developed. And then there's many times when they're trying to learn new skills and they're trying to get stuff done. And they have success with some days and some days it seems like, man, why, why am I even doing this? But then there are those days when everything comes together, when expertise and talent meet preparation and they bless a member's life and they do something great that helps pass along what the hero, our everyday credit union heroes have learned to improve the lives of the people around them. We go through this process every single day. It's the reason why we can quote movie lines sometimes better than our own procedural manuals, because the people that we see on the screen are the people we want to be. They remind us of who, of who we should and shouldn't be. And if we can bring that same essence to our work and see it as something more noble, that I think the kind of the drudgery that we kind of paint it to be, I think this world will be a lot better place. And it starts with an industry that believes at its core cooperation and people helping people. You've touched on heroes. You've touched on the role of villains. Where does drunk old men come in? <laughs> well, one of the things that I share sometimes is uh, part of my background was 
being fascinated with folks who are struggling with addictions. And the way I position it in the book is that um, people who are fu- who are struggling against an addiction, who are struggling against something that could, you know, on its own consume consume their life, uh, those folks have literally been the hero and villain in their own story. And if they can overcome that, and the way in which they overcome it is a really a beautiful embodiment of everything that I've tried to share. So being able to ground uh, this story in those drunk in that drunk old nar- narrative, and there are many other real world heroes that I share in the book, uh, but really that that's kind of the the narrative thread that I kind of work toward, um, because I think we're all we we all quietly deal with something. Uh, I think we're all quietly addicted to something. Maybe it you know maybe it's a substance, maybe it's fame, maybe it's material goods, maybe it's something that that was a good thing but has become the ultimate thing for some people. And we do that because there's a hole inside of all of us that we're looking to fill with something. So if I can help share the story of these men who have tried to fill it with everything that was trying to actively kill them, but but replacing that with something infinitely more worthy, which is community and unconditional love, then it's my honor to do that. And to be able to honor those men and the people that have stood behind them when they probably were told they shouldn't have, I can't think of better stories to share uh, in my first book. What was it that drove you to write this book? It does seem like a, a passion and a mission for you to get this one done. Yeah, you know, for me, this was um, this is about love, um, and I know that sounds super hokey, and I know that sounds super cheesy, but for me, I mean, that's really what it's all about. Um, yeah, you know, I, I wanted to write something that I wanted to write something that made the reader feel something. I wanted to engage them. Uh, in a way that wasn't just about the functional stuff at work, but was really about life and about the, that work-life relationship. I don't believe in work-life balance. I mean, I have, I cast no aspersions on anyone who use, who uses that term. I just don't like it because balance implies scarcity. Balance implies that you take one from one area and you put it in another area. I mean, we know that in financial services. I believe in work-life relationship. I believe there's a relationship that between what we do in one area versus another. What we do at work resonates at home. And being able to develop the whole person and to see them as a whole person and to give them guidance that will help them not just at work but at home, that for me was the big, was, for me was the big hook. Uh, and to give them something that they can use and practically pull out and say, hey, let's try this. Let's use this as a roadmap. Uh, I have one credit union right now uh, that is literally completely transforming and tearing down their entire talent development department because of what they read in that book. And I've had other folks that have said, you know, my relationships have changed because of the message in it. Um, love, for me, it's... It's the reason why we, we it's the reason why we get up in the morning. On our deathbed, we're not going to be asking what our balance was. On our deathbed, we're not going to be asking for more stuff. We want to be surrounded by our loved ones. We want to see when we look back, what did we do for the people that we love? I want this book to help people be proud of the answers that they'll give on that day. And I read a tale from you about how this came into play, about how this was turned out to be a very important gift this book did for you, for your mother. 
Can you tell us a little bit about yeah, that story? I can. Um, so this was, uh, so I was uh, speaking uh, for CapEd Credit Union up in Idaho, which is an unbelievably beautiful place. So to all my Idaho all people listening to Idaho, God bless you. You're living in God's country. I'm convinced of it. <laughs> um, I'm giving a giving the keynote, giving a Heroes Villains Drunk Old Men keynote to their all employee uh, event there on on Columbus Day. And I call my wife and I ask her, you know, how's everything going? And she says, you know, it's good. And you know, you know, I my wife and I we've been married for 17 years and you can tell when something is wrong just through just you know that the, the tone in their voice. Well, she, I said, you know, what's going on? She says, well, we didn't want to tell you this, but your mom was your mom's been put in the hospital. Uh, so my mom was literally um, suffering from an E. coli infection that was basically trying to vaporize her kidneys. Had she waited 24 or 48 more hours, she would have been dead, and she would have died while I was across the country. Um, this was right around the time where the book I was getting ready to launch the book. So, um, you know, I got that news at the break, at the lunch break, kind of pulled everything together and went back out and did the second half of the keynote. Um, got some great friends there at CatBed that was, you know, that were super supportive and super helpful that, that I shared this with. Because um, all I wanted to do was get home because I wanted to put that book in my mom's hands. Um, my mom was my first love. And, you know, I think any kid will say that. So to be able to put my first book in the arms of the woman who first loved me, um, can't put a price tag on that. And I know I say that a lot, but, um, you know, that's, I know it lifted her spirits. I know it, it helped her. Not because of what I wrote, but because of the look on my face. Um, so I want to make my mom proud. And I wanted to fulfill a um, promise or a potential that she saw in me decades ago that I didn't. The belief that she always had in me that I never really believed in, really, until I gave her that book. And it just seemed like everything that I had experienced in the last 46 years finally made sense. So that was a pretty cool day. It sucks because she was in the hospital and she's on her way to making a, 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 a pretty good recovery. But to be able to do that, yeah, that's, um, that's a moment that I will never forget. Powerful. If you're talking about mentors, there's number one right there, I suppose. Because mentors will always give their life for the hero. The hero, the mentor will always step in front of something dangerous so the hero can thrive. Always. It's the relationship that mentors have with their hero, with the person that they're trying to develop. The mentor is willing to lay down his or her life, you know, figuratively, if not literally, to help the hero become who he needs to be. That's why mentors resonate with us. If this book helps other people do that, it helps them kind of lay down their own pride and their own ego in the development of someone else, then this book will have accomplished a lot of its mission. You know, Andy, you used a phrase in my reflection of looking back at the creative process that brought this book about, and it was called The Lie of Perfection, and that kind of stuck with me. <laughs> uh, talk to me about what that means to you and, and where you see people 
run into that lie and, and embrace that lie accidentally from time to time? So the lie of perfection uh, actually comes from a book called Finish by John Acuff. Uh, he's a New York Times bestselling author. He is uh, he is an amazing force uh, of of productivity and helping people, you know, really help them draw the best out of themselves uh, in really practical ways. And when I think about that perfect process, you know, we always kind of mock ourselves and we we look at what we're creating, we compare it against this mythical perfect that it's never going to, you know, here's what I had in my head and it's not that, you know? <laughs> and and we think that because it is not that, then it should never be put out into the world. But his whole thesis is until you put what you're doing out into the world, it will never be what you want to see in the world. You can't see it in the world unless you put it out into the world. So, yeah, there are, you know, I look back at the book, my book, and I, I know and I look at it and go, okay, well, could change that, change that, change that, wow, change, need to change that. I don't hear that from readers. I don't hear that from them. Mm -hmm. They are, they don't see the same things I do. And, you know, these three fears of perfection that, you know, it's, he, Acuff talks about the fear of what happens next. If you put something out there, it's like, okay, oh my gosh, what do I do now? Because that was like my best thing. I think there's always the fear of being a one-hit wonder. Uh, there's this fear that it won't be perfect, okay? This fear that, oh, it's not as good as someone else's. Um, and there, then there's the third fear of, you know, again, what now? You know, I've done this, and oh my gosh, do I have to do more of it? So I think those are some silent fears that I struggled with, but it's like, you know what? Put your art out into the world. It doesn't matter if your art is on a spreadsheet or on a canvas. It doesn't matter if you type or you paint, or you write, or you shoot. It doesn't matter what those things are. Everyone is an artist because we're creating something new out of something old. And if we can embrace that and realize that this world needs our art, needs what we create, needs us serving others with what we've been given, I think the world's going to be a lot better place. Thanks for listening to the CUNA News Podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play.